Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke 6. I'm going to continue through our study in the book of Luke. We are, uh, the last couple, this week and last week, looking at sort of this big idea of responding to sin. And so when we see other people sin, if they sin against us or if we um, just encounter the sin of others, how are we to respond to that? We saw last week, we looked at 6 at verses uh, 37 through 40, and we talked about uh, judge not, that our initial response to other people's sin is, is always to re- refrain from judging, to, forget, to offer forgiveness. But this week, we're going to continue with this idea of responding to sin by looking at how are we then to respond in a way that doesn't just ignore their sin. How are we to, uh, that we don't want to be passive or apathetic about their sin? And so how then are we we to respond in the face of other people's sin? Uh, Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, he says, The love I am called to extend is the love of the cross of Christ, which stands at the intersection of God's grace and His complete intolerance of sin. That that's the love that we want to show, that's the response to sin that we want to have, is one that marries an intolerance with sin with God's grace. So with that in mind, let's turn to our passage this morning, Luke 6, verses 41 through 45. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come now, that you would send your spirit to be with us, to speak to our hearts, to open our eyes to see Your Word to us this morning. That Your Word, uh, Lord, You promised in our call to worship this morning from Isaiah that Your Word will not return to You void. And so we, um, that's what we, promise, we ask this morning. That Your Word would not return void, but that You would teach us what You have to say this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Confrontation might as well be a four-letter word, right? This idea of coming to someone else with, with their sin in a way that um, it, you have to put yourself out there. It's hard. It's difficult. None of us find it easy. I think most of us would probably say that we, we vacillate between two extremes. On the one hand, ignoring people's sin, being... Um, just kind of letting it go, having a you-do-you-man kind of attitude, and then perhaps more um, coming without grace, bombastically uh, um, 
seeking to remove sin in a way that isn't helpful, right? So maybe if something is really meaningful to us, then maybe we will get up the courage to confront sin, but we don't do it well. Because it's hard. Confronting sin is hard. In, these, in our text this morning, we have two sections. In the first section, verses 41 and 42, Jesus kind of lays out, his, he gives us this process for confronting sin in other people's lives. And then in verses 43 through 45, he talks about the importance of the heart in the Christian life. And we're going to take each of these individually, but I also do want us to see how they connect. That they're, um, if they, there is a, there's a relationship between these two, verse, these two sections that we're looking at this morning. So we'll take each of these in turn, um, starting with verses 41 through 42, where Jesus lays out um, this process, if you will, for confronting sin in others. A couple of things to notice in these verses. The first is simply the fact that Jesus does expect us to confront sin in other people. Uh, we see that just I mean, at the very end where he says that, you know, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the log out of, or the speck out of your brother's eye. That Jesus wants us to be involved in each other's lives, um, confronting one another. Galatians 6.1 uh, says, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. That when we see our brother or sister in Christ sinning, that it's our obligation to lovingly come alongside them in the midst of that sin. But second, notice who it is that we're called to remove the sin of. Jesus uses the word brother four times in this text. Because there always has to be a relational dimension to com- confronting sin. We, Jesus doesn't want us to just go willy-nilly confronting sin anywhere we see it. You know, you see somebody, um, you know, yelling at their kids in Target. Jesus doesn't expect you to go over there and confront them about that. It's, there's always a relational um, dimension to con- confronting sin. And there's a unique call that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to confront one another's sin. One of the vows that the Leiningers just took was to promote the purity and the peace of the church. And part of keeping that vow is confronting sin in one another. So men, we have a special call to confront and to walk alongside one another um, as we see um, places where each other needs to grow. Women, you have a special call to walk alongside one another in life and to be at work fighting sin together. And so in light of this calling to confront sin, Jesus gives us this two-step process for doing so. Um, You can find a lot of strategies out there in Christian books on confrontation, on, um, you know, on helping, um, you know, being an instrument, instruments in the Redeemer's hands is one of those books that talks about you know, confronting sin. You can find a million different kind of processes out there. So Paul Tripp, he has a nine-step process for confronting people's sin, which we're going to memorize this morning. Are you all excited? Um, where he uses the acronym ENCOURAGE. Um, so he has this big, long, nine-step process. You can find a lot of those out there. But Jesus gives us one here that's just two steps. So first step is to deal with your own sin, to address the log in your own eye, And then the second step is to address then your brother or sister's sin. So the last sentence of verse 42, he says, First, take the log out of your own eye, 
First step one. And then you will see clearly to take this uh, speck, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Step two. So it comes in the context of this metaphor that Jesus is using of a, a speck or a, um, the Greek word is probably more like splinter, so, but small piece of wood and a log. And it's meant to be sort of comical because you have this person with a giant log sticking out of their eye who's trying to remove a speck from someone else's eye. Jesus is, wants us to see kind of the ridiculousness of this picture of how we will, without, you know, without being completely blind to our own sin, we try to help other people with their sin. I think that if Jesus were preaching this today, he would probably kind of reference or use the illustration of the pre-flight safety instructions that you get before planes where you're supposed to told to put the, you know, put your own mask on before you help your neighbor. I think if Jesus were preaching this today, he would probably say, why are you trying to help your neighbor with his mask before you put your own oxygen mask on first? Because he wants us to see the hypocrisy of trying to confront someone about their sin without first addressing your own sin. Right, first, verse 42a says, um, how, can you, um, how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Right? The implication is that you can't. That you can't say to someone else, hey, let me help you with that, with your sin, when you're blind to your own sin. So Jesus isn't saying that, this, that it's best that we deal with our own sin first. He's saying that that is the only option. It's the only way to confront sin is by starting with your own. And so he gives us this two-step process of, dealing with your own, of starting with your own sin and then moving on to your brother's. It's, which is a, it's a very simple method, but it's really very hard, extremely difficult to live out. Because starting with your own sin means starting with, starting with a series of questions for yourself. That anytime you see someone else, a brother or sister in Christ, a family member who is sinning, who's caught in sin and needs to be confronted... It means starting with questions for yourself. Have I in any way sinned against them in this situation? Did I do anything to prompt their sin? So let's take, for instance, that you find out their good friend who's been talking about you behind their back. So if you start with these questions about your own sin, it would be, did I do anything to, to drive them to talk about my own sin? Did I hurt them in some way? Have, did I respond poorly by then? Maybe did I bash them to our friends as well in response, right? So you start with these questions of what have I done in this situation? And then asking, um, how have I sinned in a similar way? We talked about this some last week, of letting other people's sin serve as a mirror to your own sin. But the point of these questions is to start by confessing and repenting of our own sin in the situation. Because only then can we, once we've repented of our own sin, can you address the other person's sin in a way that is, um, that's biblical and helpful. There are several reasons we could give 
uh, as to why it is so essential that we start with our own sin. But I want to pull out two that I think we can, uh, the kind of, we can see reflected in this text. So the first, um, we have to address our own sin because before we can understand the extent of the other person's sin. So when someone else sins against us, our first reaction is always going to be to, to place all of the blame on them. So if we go back to this example of the, right, the friend who talks about you behind your back, the, fir- the natural response would be that that is an, a betrayal of trust, that they hurt you, that they, um, they've broken the relationship. When there's a break in a relationship, we naturally place the blame on the other person. Right? But when we address our own sin first, we can begin to see the place, places where we are to blame as well. In other words, what once looked like a log in their eye may begin to look like a speck. So, again, if we go back to this illustration of someone talking behind your back, perhaps you did something that you hurt them in some way, and they, which drove, not to excuse their sin, but that drove them to talk about you behind their back, behind your back. Or um, that, uh, you know, did you then respond by talking about them behind their back? Right, so the immediate... Uh, Response would be to place all of the blame on them. But as we dig into our own sin, we can often, often see the ways that where we contributed to the broken relationship, where our own sin um, was active in this situation. Which means that in confronting them, we are confronting their actual sins, not their sins plus any number of imagined offenses. So we can confront their actual sins rather than our own unmet expectations. Because that's the key here, is that so often when we confront sins, our focus is on the broken relationship, the way that this, the person's sin affected us. But if we deal with our own sin first, if we come to God in repentance, it gives us a Godward, um, a Godward direction in our own hearts, which helps us to understand that their real problem is not with us, it's a need for a restored relationship with God. That their real sin is not the ways that they hurt us, but the ways that they've disobeyed God. And so, if we deal with our own sin first, it gives us a better view of what the actual extent of the other person's sin. But the second reason it's essential that we address our own sin first, and this is huge, is so that we can come with gospel truth rather than moralism. If you see someone sin, our natural response is to, um, to come arrogantly, essentially. So if you, uh, if you address your own sin first, then you can come as a fellow sinner who knows where grace is found. But... If you don't, then our natural inclination is to come with a just stop it mentality. To say, where we're arrogantly trying to kind of pass our own holiness on to the other person. Saying, hey, you just need to cut that out. That's not what you should do. But if we deal with our own sin first, we can come the way that Jesus wants us to. As beggars, telling other beggars where to find food. Because the hope that we have to offer others when we see the splinter in their eye, is nothing that's within us. You, you will never remove a splinter from anyone's eye, ever. 
Only God can really remove our sin. He just uses us as instruments in the process. Because the hope that we have to offer does not come from ourselves. It doesn't come from anything within us. It's the power of Christ's death, right? Of removing sin. It's the grace of God to to change our hearts. So that's why this two-step process that Jesus gives us is so important. Why it's so essential that we start with our own sin. is because it gives us an accurate picture of the person's real problem and the real solution to that problem. So verses 41 and 42, Jesus talks about confronting sin, about helping others remove um, specks from their eye. But, and then in verses 43 through 45, Jesus kind of shifts gears a little bit to talk about the heart and the importance that it plays in holiness. So verse 43, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. So Jesus uses this metaphor of a tree and fruit, where the tree stands for, in for a person's heart, and the fruit represents our actions. So the, the idea here is that the dominant behavior of a person with a good heart will not be unrighteousness. And the dominant behavior of a person with a, a wicked heart won't be righteousness. So this doesn't mean, because I, I think sometimes I read this text and it, this, it seems to be, uh, it almost seems to exclude the possibility of somebody faking it. Right for years, which I think we've all seen. People who, who seem to be following Christ, who seem to love Jesus, and then walk away from the faith, walk away from their families. Uh, I've even, you know, even seen pastors who, who will do this, who for years seem to be following Christ. And Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying that that will never happen. But what he's saying is that the fruit that they seem to show wasn't real. They were just changing up their outsides in order to look good. And what he is saying on top of that is that eventually your actions will catch up with your heart. And so it may take years. You, maybe you can fake it for years, but eventually your actions will catch up with your heart. And that a, an evil heart, a heart set on its own desires, will produce a traje- trajectory of evil. Whereas a good heart, a heart that's set on what God loves will produce a trajectory of good. So he's combating two attitudes here. The first would be kind of what we just talked about, which is this this fruit stapling idea, which is so um, Paul Tripp uses that illustration where he talks about, you know, you expect a fruit to produce, or a tree to produce fruit, but if we just are changing the outside, we're just stapling fruit to a tree. So Jesus is saying, he's combating that attitude first of, Don't just try to staple fruit to your tree. You have to do the hard work of of actually uh, changing your heart. It's not enough just to change your outward appearance. The second attitude that I think that Jesus is combating here is the attitude that would say, I know there's not a lot of fruit in my life, but I have a good heart. I know that I don't do the right things, but my heart is in the right place. And there can be, the danger there is there's some truth, right? There's some truth to that idea that if, because often 
because God does work in our hearts first. And sometimes it does, it does take the, the fruit, the, the actions, the lived righteousness. Um, it may take years to follow. But what Jesus is saying is that if you see this trajectory where you think you have a good heart, but you don't live it out, to, that you need to take a step back and not, don't use that as an excuse not to analyze um, your life and your relationship with Christ. So don't, don't say, hey, I have a good heart even though I'm not, you know, I don't love my wife well or my kids. And don't use this good heart as an excuse because if your actions are bad, it means you actually don't have the good heart that you think you do. Jesus continues then this, uh, this idea in verse 45 with a similar metaphor. He talks about, so he says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. So what do we think of when we think of treasure? Naturally, we think of pirates. So that's not what Jesus is thinking about, but that's what we're going to run with. All right, so we've got two pirates with two different types of treasure. Um, and so one has treasure chests that are filled with gold. The other has treasure chests that are filled with rocks. The idea is simple, right? You cannot give what you don't have. So if you go to the one pirate and ask him for, who has gold, and you ask him for rocks, he can't give you rocks, because what he's got is gold. If you go to the other one with the bad treasure and you ask him for gold, he can't give you gold, because what he has is rocks. The point here is that you can't bring out what isn't there. If there isn't good in your heart, you're not going to produce good actions. If there isn't, if there's, um, right? If, but if there is good in your heart, then that's, you know, you'll bring out what you have. You won't be able to do good unless there's good in your heart. So change or holiness that only goes surface deep isn't real change at all. It isn't real holiness. In order to really change, we have to develop hearts that truly love God. Hearts that desire to do what God loves. So whether we're addressing sin in our own lives or sin in someone else's life, we have to go deeper than the surface actions. We have to address the heart that lies behind the sin. Um, you know, so, so we have to address the heart out of which that sin is arising. Uh, someone recommended a book to me recently that I haven't read, so I can't recommend it to you. It's called Atomic Habits, and it's by a guy named James Clear. Uh, the gist of the book, from what I've heard, is that in order to change your habits... You, you, you have to change your identity, your self-conception. You can't, it's not enough just to change um, what you do. You have to actually change who, how you see yourself. And so if you want to become the kind of per, so if you want to start exercising, you can't just say, all right, here's, I'm going to start exercising Monday, Wednesday, Friday, put it on the calendar, and expect that habit to stick. You have to embrace a mentality that says, I am the type of person who exercises. And so... And in one sense, he's picking up on what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. This modern secular psychiatrist is picking up on Jesus' idea that you, have to, you can't just change your actions. You have to go deeper. You have to change your, um, your heart, your who you are. But he misses the fact that you can't just change your identity. You can't just change how you view yourself, how, who you are. Only Christ can change who we are. And that's, the Bible teaches us that when we become believers, He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new identity in Christ. 
And that all of the holiness, righteousness, and fruit that we produce flows from this new identity, this new heart that God gives us. And in that sense, this text is not just a call to develop a new heart, although it is. It's a call for us to to dig in, to ask the hard questions. But it's also a reminder of the heart that we have, if we are in Christ, that we have already been given a new heart. And in that sense, it's a call more so to live out of the heart that we already have. To act like the type of tree that we already are in Christ. And to produce the treasure that is already yours, if you're a believer. But if you're not a believer, then this passage is saying that no amount of surface change can ever produce good works. That what you really need is a total makeover in Christ. You need Him to come in and change you over from the top um, from the top to the bottom, from the inside out. So in these verses, 43 through 45, Jesus is saying that nothing He's been teaching us over the last chapter or so, throughout chapter 6, that nothing He's been teaching us can just be tacked onto the surface. You cannot count poverty, hunger, weeping, persecution as blessings unless you have a new heart. You'll never love your enemies unless you have a heart that is, first of all, fixated on God. You'll never be able to to refrain from judging or forgive unless God changes you from the inside out. And it's not just true of what Jesus has been saying. Really, Really, anything in this book, there's no command in this book that we can keep without a new heart from God. So in context, these verses on the importance of the heart apply to everything Jesus has been saying, and again, to everything in the Bible. Um, But we're handling them alongside verses 41 and 42 because I think they have some unique um, uh, applications to how we are to address other people's sin. That when we're faced with uh, an opportunity to confront sin in someone else, I think these verses speak into that um, specifically. Um, so we're gonna, again, we're going to look at two ways that these verses speak into that idea of confronting sin and specifically the importance of addressing our own sin first. The first is that these verses remind us that we are judged by our own righteousness. So we see this idea in verse 44. He says, For each tree is known by its own fruit. So that phrase, its own, right, implies a distinction between one's own righteousness and someone else's. That confronting someone else's sin is no substitute for producing fruit in your own life. This is a unique, I think, especially a challenge for those who are in positions of spiritual leadership. So uh, one of the first things that I was taught in preaching class is that you're not ready to preach a text until you've applied it to your own heart. Because you have to start with your, your own righteousness, your own holiness. But I think another uh, really common or a position of spiritual leadership that I know many of y'all are in is just parenting. That as a parent, you, you are in a position of spiritual leadership. If you're married, do you have a special, a special responsibility to, for the spiritual welfare of your spouse? And so it can be really tempting to replace your own spiritual life, your own walk, with trying to seek the holiness of your children or your spouse or uh, the men or women in your D group, if you're a D group leader. That there's this temptation to 
um, to substitute. But what Jesus is saying is that your spouse or your child's or your friend's holiness is no substitute for your own, right? Because you will be judged by your own fruit. But second, this passage is a teaches us that our words always reflect our hearts. We see this idea in verse 45, our very last sentence. It says, For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is important as we think about confronting people's sin, because sin always breeds sin. If someone sins against us, our temptation is always to sin back. So we get into this verbal ping-pong. I don't know if you've, where you, you almost have, feel, like, feel like you need to one-up their, their accusation of sin against you. And if we have a heart that is evil, set on our own desires, that's exactly how we'll respond. Rather than coming with loving words of confrontation, we, get into, we can get into these accusatorial ping-pong games. But if we have a heart that loves what God loves, it's only then that we can respond lovingly to other sin. That rather than, um, than responding with frustration, we come with a loving, words of loving confrontation. So this is tied to that idea of dealing with your own sin first, because dealing with your own heart first helps to protect um, us from responding with judgment and anger. But also dealing with your own sin first means that when you come with words of confrontation and you speak from the abundance of your heart, it can be good abundance rather than evil abundance. That dealing with your own sin first addresses the evil overflow of your own heart. So that when you come with words of confrontation, you can say, I've been there. I know what it's like to struggle with sin. This is what helped me. These are the gospel truths that helped me as I fought sin in my own life. So as we confront our brothers and sisters in Christ with their sin, it's essential that we understand the importance of the heart, our own heart and theirs, and that we deal with our own sin first so that we can come humbly and with grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we we thank you that you don't leave us in our sin, um, that you... Lord, you gave us these words to remind us of our, our call to, to live life together and to, uh, to confront the sin in one another and to, to fight against it together. Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us love for um, the people in our lives whose sin uh, we're aware of this morning, whether it's family members, friends who need to hear Uh, who need to be confronted, Lord, that you would give us the courage to do so and the love to do so well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.